In today's episode, we're going to be diving deep into some behavioral science concepts so that you can enhance your experiences and tell better stories. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the first principles that they've used throughout their career to help guide them to success? Then we apply all those insights to the world of sports and entertainment, hospitality, live events, service industry, your organization. Now, today's guest is Troy Campbell. And this is part one of part two. Why are we breaking it up into two episodes? We just went really long. Uh, this is one of the longer episodes that we've ever recorded. And it's jam-packed with heavy science-based principles around how people think, uh, and especially around kind of fandom and how consumers think. Now, as we, we think about that, I mean, throughout the episode, we're going to cover a lot of useful takes. It's kind of a different, uh, a different approach to doing the podcast than we've had before. But as we were talking with Troy ahead of time, he was like, I think this would be a fun way to do it. So we went with it. And what we got is like some in this episode, there's useful takes like why it's okay that Marvel doesn't have mass appeal right now, why it's okay that you don't like every single thing that they put out. We talk about why Nike ads are actually quite simple to make because they're basing it off of a unique framework that they've created that just slaps every single time. And we talk about using existing stories to amplify your own narratives in your own marketing or communication attempts. So I'll give you a little bit of background on Troy, then we're just going to jump into this episode because it's jam-packed with good stuff. So Troy's mindset is really kind of this scientific mind and artistic heart. And again, we're going to apply scientific principles to pop culture and art type things. Um, and so you kind of need that art and science to really be successful, to win over the hearts and minds of the people that you're trying to connect with. And for Troy, he is the chief scientist for On Your Feet. And they have worked with major brands like Disney, Nike, Netflix, Apple, um, to really help them understand some of these scientific principles, the, the real why behind why things are the way that they are and why people behave the way that they do. Um, so ultimately what he does with his clients is he's trying to help them create more joy, less fear and better results. And that comes from a lot of understanding the why. So I won't go any further. Let's jump into this episode. Uh, again, this is part one of part two. We are going to cut it about halfway through the conversation. There's kind of a natural breaking point in our talk together, and we're going to drop part two next week. So if we come to a sudden stop at the end, that's why. Without further ado, enjoy this episode with Troy Campbell. Troy, what's happening? I'm happy to have you on the show. I'm, I'm excited. I've listened to episodes. I have felt the immediate value that you bring people um, and also make it kind of fun. So this is going to be great. Yeah, I have no, for, for if you're listening at home, like I have no idea how the hell this episode is going to go. Uh, okay. We are 15 minutes into our recording before we actually hit record. And we're like, okay, we could take this podcast episode in a bunch of different directions. Uh -huh. So just ride with us for the next 45 minutes as, uh, <laughs> cool. as we get going. 
Um, all right, little little bit on Troy. Troy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you obviously spent some time with Disney, with the Imagineers, mm-hmm. which is going to be really cool uh, to dig into those insights. But talk to us a little bit about your background and kind of your value prop that you're adding into the world right now. Okay, so I believe in thesis statements as an academic. So here's a long thesis statement on me. Uh, my name is Troy Hedden Campbell, and I use a distinct scientific mind, artistic heart approach. So that combines the rigor and sort of useful limitations which science can put on ideas combined with the sort of abstract, artistic, expressionistic, emotional, and also techniques of art. And so I use a scientific mind and artistic heart perspective to create and capture both original and just rehashes, reworkings of other powerful ideas um, in many different ways. Some of those are science, so I'll do research. I have a project on solution aversion, you might have heard about it. The Obama administration uses it. Adam Grant talks about how people deny problems because they're scared of the solution. I, I use that to tell story, do things for storytelling and experiential design, Disney Imagineering, uh, Nike, and then also processes of creativity. So recently, uh, one of my team has worked in Tinker Hatfield's lab at Nike of how people can be more daily creative. And uh, what we're doing is we're using this to uh, help people learn and make amazing things. And since repetition is important, and I know it sounds annoying, I'm going to say that one more time so you know it. My name is Troy Campbell, and I use a distinct scientific mind, artistic heart approach to create and capture original and powerful ideas in many different ways to help people learn and make amazing things. I'll hit it one more time. Everything can be amazing when you've got a scientific mind and an artistic heart. And I think one of the great things about you that in listening to you on different podcasts coming before coming on here is I love the way that you're able to kind of make science cool, make science culturally relevant. So uh, for today, I think one of the ways that we're going to start to unpack some different scientific or uh, ideas is kind of through some takes and, or some, some, some insights. So um, why don't we start there? Give it, give us a hot take right now and and let's unpack it and figure out why it's that way. Yeah. So let me be an annoying scientist for a second before we start of artistically ramble is to say this kind of concept of takes I call is useful takes. So they're not hot, they're not cold, they're not necessarily controversial. They're simply meant to be useful. And usually what they're meant to be useful is to help already engaged people have better conversations about what they're already having. So here's a useful take, I think, about one of something I like, and I know you like, David, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the current discussion as we come to the end of phase four. And that is, if you like any everything if you like everything any big brand is doing like marvel then that brand is doing something wrong i am here for that and i've gotten into multiple arguments about it um i i feel like i'm kind of the guy that tends to like things just because they're different and i appreciate the approach like when they first rolled out wandavision actually Dwayne Peavy, the athletic director of DePaul, who was my next door neighbor at the time, he and I got into an argument about whether it was cool or not. And I was like, I think it's cool just because it's simply different than what they've done. And they're trying something different and it's going to resonate. Same thing with Doctor Strange, the multiverse of madness. Like I'm like, they're attempting horror. Like it's not true horror, but it's different Mm -hmm. and not everybody's going to love it. But maybe you can tell me why I think that is true and why that is cool. Yeah. So, um, so if you are a big brand, 
So let's talk about the, let's talk about this from a business. So sometimes I say I have a scientific mind, artistic heart, and a business sensibility, but business sensibility sounds really boring. Uh, but let's actually talk about the business before we get into the science and art of this. So the business case is really simple. When there is a big, huge brand, they need to appeal to lots and lots of different people, right? And that means that no single person in the world, or almost nobody in the world, fits the demographics of who they are going to, fits the preference set of who they're going to, because they're going to lots and lots of different people. One thing I love to say, especially to just annoy liberals, is you cannot be a successful main business without getting many people who voted for Trump to buy your product, right? There's, there's just exceptions to that. Um, and so you have to do all these different things. Um, uh, I used to often have the sort of metaphor is as a brand, are you Deadpool or are you Disney? Because if you're Deadpool, you can go for a niche audience. But if you're Disney, you need everybody. Mm -hmm. And Marvel is this big brand now, right? It is like as it is almost like a cable channel. It's like Comedy Central, right? So there's going to be stuff you're going to like and stuff you're going to not like. And maybe you like this one special that this one care, this one standup is in, like this one movie, this one character is in. And then maybe we'll watch the show they cameo in or the show they star in. Or maybe you don't like the show, but you like the movie. And that is the reality of the existence of it. It is a sad reality, I think, for some people who like the Marvel Cinematic Universe was smaller mm -hmm. up until the end of Endgame. But and now like it is breaking out to get even a larger audience. And so it's it's less for you now. It is. And it is. It is intentionally less for you now than it used to be. I love it. And again, I, I think it I think about this as it relates to, you know, sports teams. That's where we always go. And like to me, that is why, like when we get into this era of NIL, which I don't know how familiar you are with that whole space, but like as you have athletes, it's why as a team, like I think you should be investing in growing their brands that have nothing to do with basketball. Because if you've got the guy that loves cooking, like invest in that guy to create cooking, fan, like to do more cooking content and be broader so that we can bring in other niches and be appealing as a brand. We can stretch our overall brand by going a little bit more niche. I don't know. That's kind of how I think about it. What what else? Yeah, you got? and you oh, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, you're stretching. Um, so yeah, and I just want to add on that on the on the science part is what we're having is people are engaging in what I think is often overlooked as possibly the most important human bias, especially the social situations, okay. is egocentrism. So egocentrism is simply the idea that we experience the world from our own perspectives, and we often conflate our subjective feelings with objective truths. So I don't like something, the decision is wrong. So there are, you can make many arguments about how the current Marvel content isn't perfect. It, it wasn't super well made. The stories aren't. And I think there are very, there's a lot of valid critiques. I think some of the people who even made the content would say, you know, we had to rush things and do certain things like that. But a lot of times what that is coming from originally that people aren't noticing is that they just don't like it. That She-Hulk, as it was intended to be, and She-Hulk, even in its best form, would not be something that you would really like. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Just like when I accidentally take a bite of my girlfriend's Dave's uh, hot chicken and she gets the really spicy stuff, and I eat that, I don't say this chicken is wrong. 
I say, I'm not a person that likes this level of spice, right? And and that chicken, they could have made that chicken better potentially, right? There are better chickens than Dave Waffles there. It's better storytelling than She-Hulk. But She-Hulk is utterly loved by tons and tons of people. So they did at least something right in there. And if you confuse your own emotional reaction, your own egocentric experience with objective quality, um, you're going to be making a mistake. And that is the internet. <laughs> when when we when we think about egocentrism applied to like maybe even another type of business, maybe that's more service instead of product focus. Like how do you mm-hmm. think about that principle? Uh, yeah. So I think that one of the real huge problems in any service scenario is that um, people who are in the service, uh, people's naive assumption is that whatever I would want in that situation is what all other customers would want. And so they will often interact with people as they would want to be interacted with. And you'll often get these like incredibly talented people to go into a service thing. Like they know the product more. They know everything really well. But then they'll treat the customer like them. And then somebody who is young, doesn't know the product as well, but just generally understands how to sort of get a feel for each of the person they are engaged with and then sort of uses stereotypes in the right way because you have to use like some hypotheses about what type of person this is over time. Obviously problems, obviously problems, obviously problems. One more time, internet, obviously problems with that. Um, but that person will be more successful because they're able to be empathetic and especially yeah. to be empathetic in a way that escapes their egocentrism. And I'll tell you one last, one last thing on egocentrism. Lots and lots of people think they are empathetic because they say this. Well, if I was in their shoes, no, 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 no. Every single time, whenever I'm thinking about anybody, I, I think about it. Like if I was in their shoes, but you aren't in their shoes. They are in their shoes mm. and they are different from you. I love that. I mean, it just, it, go, it throws out the, the golden rule of like treat others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. It throws that out and says, treat others the way they want to be treated. And it goes uh-huh. back to this whole personalization thing. And I love it. All right. Let's talk more yep. useful takes. What else you got? Useful takes. Um, all right. So let's get a little spicier. Um, so obviously I like this brand um, a lot and I have worked for them and that is Nike, but uh, a, somewhat exaggerated statement, which is not fully true, but the, oh, you're wearing Nike. Yeah. Um, I'm wearing Virgil Abloh, who, but this is not a Nike collection. Um, and uh, here's the take. Um, uh, Nike ads are actually easy to make. And we keep thinking, oh my God, what brilliant storytelling these Nike ads were when all they really are some of the time is a new synonym for the word greatness, a celebrity who looks cool, the Nike logo, and some trending hip-hop genre mashed-up song. And anybody who has a little bit of marketing talent who had the same access to that music library, those celebrities, those filters, and the brand equity of Nike could to some degree pull off those ads. So why do they work so well then? Why do we consistently, if the formula is that easy to break down, I mean, why are we always, because you're right. I mean, like I remember the last one that came out before the Kanye album dropped and it was, I think it was like Drake and Little Dirk. And, and I was, I think I watched that thing or, or it was, it was Kanye, it was the Kanye song that was playing from Donda, the pre-Donda. And I, I watched that, that, uh, 
that commercial, I don't know how many times, probably 10 times. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. Why, why do we still praise those commercials if the framework's that easy? Yeah. So, um, I think it, I think it's, it's really important in life to like break down different types of good, right? So something can be good because it is an artistic masterpiece. Something can be good because it was really hard to make. Something can be good because it makes you feel something. Something can be good because it helps you learn something. Something can good because it morally states the right thing, or it could be good even if it kind of misses the moral, but encourages the right moral. And with Nike ads, lots of times, they are objectively good in the sense that the impact that they have on you is amazing. Of course, they're going to have that amazing impact. They are borrowing the equity from the best storylines that we have, which is sports and sort of these mythic celebrities with these incredible images and music. Of course, it's great. It, they are they are a great experience. Interesting. I, I guess I don't know. I've never thought about it like that. And yeah. I, so how how do we? I mean, what what are some of the core principles behind yeah. that? I mean, how do, and then how do we take that and apply it to other businesses? Yeah. So let's talk about other businesses. So one of the things I like to say is, okay, what is Nike doing in their ads? So one of the things we can talk about is their storytelling form. And then the other thing we can talk about is borrowing story from other things. Hmm. So let's talk about borrowing story from other things. So uh, a company you and I both work for, um, when they when they design roller coasters, what do they do? Disney borrows their own IP to make the roller coaster or the ride better, right? Rise of Resistance is a pretty darn good ride. But one of the reasons people love it is because it's Star Wars. Yep. Space Mountain is a pretty good ride. But one of the reasons people love it is because of the general mythos around space travel. And so if you have the opportunity when you are telling a story borrow existing stories that people love either from EIP that you can somehow have access to or these general mythic stories. So for instance, recently one of the one of the products out, one of the most successful sort of movies uh, of the last year didn't borrow IP. They borrowed mythic history and that was the Indian film RRR. Right, okay. this utterly mm -hmm. smash hit that borrows Hindu mythology in a way that's really, really effective. Just like Jurassic Park sequels are borrowing both Jurassic Park, but they're also borrowing the mythos of dinosaurs and also Tim making Tim Cook a villain. <laughs> um, right, and uh, and it's 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 borrowing those stories, and you could say that that is cheating. But then you also need to look in the mirror and say, what do you like that isn't borrowing mythos and IP, right? Um, and so there's a discussion around sort of the morality and how much we should praise the artist, which is kind of my joke at the start when I'm saying Nike ads are easy to make. Uh, but of course, everything that is amazing is pulling from things that are already amazing with only few exceptions. Even if you take like, do I have any of his art up right now? Oh, no, I have it in storage. Um, I don't have any original Van Goghs, but I do have a lot of prints. Uh, and right, so he, really awesome, awesome. But he is, what is he painting? He's painting sunflowers, cypress. He's painting the night sky. He's painting beautiful towns. He's borrowing the mythos of those things in order to create stories. So how do you borrow something from something else? 
are are there businesses that you can think of on a regular basis where I, I mean I, again with your with your brain and the way that you process and assess things it's like working at a restaurant once you go to a restaurant mm-hmm. you critique everything so are there businesses mm-hmm. that you think about on a regular basis with this particular principle around borrowing narrative that you see like man if they were just to borrow some more narrative like they could have launched that 10 times better are there are there examples that you can think of like that, like businesses that if they just applied that principle? Yeah. So I don't like, I don't like talking. I like making fun of successful companies more okay. than I okay. like tearing down existing companies. So well, let's use Dave's, Dave's hot chicken since I already sure. talked about it. Sure. So they, um, they, you know, they borrow so much from modern culture to create this new thing. I think Dave's uh, hot chicken is almost like this interesting thing is it's like the first, uh, we can talk about this term later, uh, meta modern sort of, uh, of meta modern times brand in fast food or the first really successful or one of the first really successful post Chipotle revolution, right? So we had fast food and then we had, you know, the fast casual revolution and fast casual has had its sort of own influence on, um, uh, like McDonald's and stuff. And now McDonald's is all nice, like a Chipotle. Um, but Dave's chicken and waffles like literally has in like this, like creepy font in a pink, uh, purple neon sign in one of the locations close to me, hot AF, right? This is a, mainstream brand more or less using the f word in a neon sign in a location and in my town right next to a mcdonald's and Coles. right um they are borrowing so much from the energy of modern times and i know some like gen z people out there it's like oh that's so old already but it's still it's and we'll talk about it it is cool for fast food you can't you can't say that maybe made chicken isn't super cool, but compared to the McDonald's next to it, it hell yeah it is and has this like cool graffiti art and stuff on it. It looks like a like you know a knockoff Venice graffiti thing and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's borrowing what is cool from culture and putting it in. And of course, sometimes you can borrow, and if you don't do that authentically, you're seen yep. as terrible. Just like when adults use. Language like lit and AF and savage and all that stuff. Those are pretty old already that I've said. Uh, and yeah. I say, I say bet. Is bet still cool? Are we allowed to say that? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Um, m- moving I like on. when the rappers go bet, 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 bet. Uh, that's fun. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's me in a, in a business meeting on a regular basis, but, mm-hmm. um, all right, let's keep moving here. Uh, what are, do you have any more useful takes that off the top of your head that we can kind of start to unpack here? Oh, I, I have so many. Let's keep, let's keep um, rolling before we uh, get let's to Disney, going. but I also want to make yeah. sure we come back to metamodernism too, because I think that's a really cool concept for, okay. for Um, so I guess, uh, I love connecting things. So I mentioned story as a hanging thing. So let's make this a take. So okay. lots of times what people say is, you should tell, how do I tell my one story? And the answer to that is don't just tell one story, tell many stories about one thing. And so my term that I like to use for this is multi-narrative storytelling. And it's what Nike, Apple, and everybody does. So really quickly, what multi-narrative storytelling is, is you have a core idea, and often that is like a slogan. Think different, just do it, scientific mind, artistic heart. Um, 
And then what you do with that is you tell a story that almost feels like a montage. So if we want to talk about Nike and Apple, lots of times what they do in their commercials is it's just with Nike, it's just here's a bunch of different athletes and some people maybe who are fashion designers and they're all just doing it. And you're telling that core story. And by using many of those other stories, you are bringing deep meaning to the core story, which reinforces what the core story is and helps you understand that while expanding it in a way at the same time, this weird thing that it kind of double does. And so now I know just do it is playing through difficulty. Just doing it is finishing the race, even if you're not going to win. And just do it means kneeling during a football game, right? And it all has this idea of this energy. And what Nike is really, really good at doing is that every single year that there's like a new culture thing that fits with them, they will borrow that and make it a part of it, right? And I'm not saying in any way that I'm critiquing the morality in Nike and saying this, but from a strictly non-moral perspective, oh my God, was the Colin Kaepernick thing a great decision, right? It is taking where the center of youth energy is, which is stand up to systematic problems, and it is now making that consistent with Nike, right? Um, and now just do it means that thing. And and uh, Apple, in one of like the most successful commercials of all time, did this as well too, right? They said, think different, and then they showed you tons and tons of different athletes and philo philosophical thinkers and social movers and adventurers over all the time. They borrowed those stories, they built it around that, and they brought meaning to what Think Different was and sold the computer without ever showing the computer in the ad. A multi-narrative storytelling, multi-narratives around a core story. I, I, gotta, I gotta ask this question, because I mean, I love this. I, I think there are a lot of brands that don't have their initial story to be able to go yeah. tell a multi-narrative story. They, they haven't figured out that think different or that just do it yep. or what are we actually about? I, I, I got to ask this. I mean, how, how have you, do you help organizations do that? I mean, is that something that yeah. you've done and like, what's a useful question or set of questions or framework that can help somebody start to think about what is our differentiating yeah. story? Yeah, so let's go through a, a couple different examples. And yes, I've done this and uh, lots of times I can say which brands I've worked for on on these projects but for this one i'm not okay. gonna say but just think the top 50 um <laughs> and uh and um uh so um here's the brands are at so many different places um and so uh to sort of answer this in a long form we were working for this one really really large media brand where they were trying to come up with their core sort of mission vision statement um, and some companies like really care about the difference between their mission and vision, which is, of course, two different things. Vision is where you're going. Mission is what you deliver on a yeah. day. But some businesses are like, we don't care. We just want a center. Um, and uh, we walked into that meeting and some people are like, what are we doing? We already know what we are. And and like five people are like, yeah, we already know what we are. And then 15 people are like, no. And so it's like, OK, it was on Zoom during the pandemic. And I was like, everybody. Uh, you're going to go in pairs and you're going to have five minutes to write down what you think the slogan of the company should be right now, like an internal thing. And then they all came back. And then what was it? What was uh, the finding? They all had different ones. Uh, they all had to not totally different ones. And then what we did is we did lots and lots of activities 
in which we had people do them more and more and more. And then we said, well, if we removed this, would you be angry at it? And then what we really did is we really focused on the first day being discovery. And so we discovered all the ideas. And then what my group does, um, and because we're very sciencey and stuff like that, is we can take all the things they say and we can really understand what the construct is. So they've said a hundred words, but really all those words are about three or four different constructs, right? It's about, oh, you said a million things about team, community, energy. Okay, that's belonging, right? That is the idea that you really care about. You said things about sort of making things thrilling. You said things about engagement. You said things about memorable. Okay, well, since you are delivering experiences, really it's exciting experiences. And then what we can really come back to them the next day with is we've like reduced the constructs to like five or seven. We can pick the constructs and then we can write it and then we can go uh, wordsmith it later. And so it's these, uh, I often talk about like the D's of deciding and designing. So that's you, the, it's discover, decide, design. And then if you want a l- larger field, uh, which is often what we're doing in the middle of the sessions with company, it's discover, have then somebody else define all the little parts, then decide from that. And then, but deciding and designing, once you've made the decision, you now have to do some like almost detailing of what is really important to allow the designer to go. And on a sidebar, I you have never seen a room of just stressed out executives just get like comfort when you're just like, okay, all we're going to do for the next hour is discovery. And then tomorrow we'll do deciding. And then the future we'll do designing. And they're like, oh, whoa, whoa, yeah. Wow, that's that's um, that's really brilliant. I'm like, yeah, it's me taking the scientific method and putting Ds for each of the steps. But we'll just, we'll just, we'll just pretend that was the most brilliant idea ever that I came up with I, randomly in a workshop one time. I, I've heard it with ease too, right? You get into the consultant space and you're like, everybody's got versions of the same construct yeah. for those frameworks, right? It's just about how do you package it and, and make it, uh, make it really. Yeah. Really um, and I really like, um, so I do, I, I was joking a little bit and like downplaying, I really like my D's of design. So yeah. they are one more time. They are, d- discover, define, decide. And then the, the, se- the second three are detail, design, deliver. And what I really like about them is you're able to give them to somebody and I'm able to empower the person who is like the executive that I'm most working with, like the people officer, the creative officer. And I'm like, you can choose, that's, you can choose whether you, which ones of them. And so lots of times they'll be like, okay, if I'm going to my people, I'm going to actually cut out the define step and the design step because it makes sense. And so you're able to sort of give the people the framework and then they come with the framework and then they're like, our the the PhD who worked on us that signed off on this, right? And <laughs> then it works for them. And I love, I mean, I, I make fun of corporate America all the time. And I think that people overpraise how brilliant people are in corporate America. But gosh darn, are there some amazingly amazing human beings with them? And I love the fact that I get to work with them and actually help them do awesome things, helping smarter people be even smarter. Woohoo, what a great life to live. <laughs> and I again, I love it too because you're applying all these fundamental like con- science constructs to this, right? So it's not just like, oh, <laughs> hey, we voted and this was the best word. So let's go with that one, right? Like you guys are bringing some yeah. scientific principles to it. I love it. Um, all right, let's, let's do a useful take about Disney. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Give, give, give me one. 
what is a useful take about Disney? Yeah. Um, so we did the Disney idea of the Disney brand up there. Um, do we want to do something about storytelling um, sure. or about experiential design? Okay. Let's go. So, let's go storytelling. Okay. So um, uh, this is one of probably my five favorite ideas, period, uh, that I've ever came up with. And it's called the destiny narrative. They say that in all good stories, characters change. And that's, of course, true. If you're actually to reduce storytelling to one word, you'd probably reduce it to the word change or maybe the two similar words of cause and character. So in all stories, characters change. But in the greatest stories of all time, characters go through a specific type of change. They change into who they were always meant to be. The princess was secretly always the princess. The wizard always was the wizard. That person always had some anger inside of them and it came out. Luke always had the force inside of him. And in all these stories, they tend to follow a three or four step model. And that is always struggle discovery. So Luke Skywalker always felt called to the sky. He would sit on Tatooine and look up into the stars at the twin suns and long for something different. But he struggled because he did not know what that was. Until one day he discovered that he was a Jedi and that his had this force inside of him. And when he's able to see that, he was able to self-actualize and save the galaxy, right? And then there's this fourth step sometimes, which is in the sequels where you reaffirm that destiny, right? So Frozen 2, Empire Strikes Back is reaffirming that destiny. And this structure is the secret sauce of what Disney is actually doing. And so that's the useful take. It's the secret stock of their movies, and it's the secret stock of their marketing as well. And it is the most powerful narrative that you can use, or I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it is an incredibly powerful storytelling that you can work. And the reason that it works is that it uses all the science that makes things wonderful, right? It's story, so it's about change. But it also is works with the things we like as human beings, which is is coherent, right? This character is coherently changing in this way. It also works with identity and authenticity. We want people to change, but we want them to be true to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about where the destiny narrative has been used unbelievably effectively, and I'm going to do this so everybody gets angry. Where, where are two amazing uses of the destiny narrative in modern times? Here it is. Pride and Donald Trump. Pride and Donald Trump, right? Because the pride campaign was most successful or was more successful when the idea is a person is, you know, this is who they are. They've mm-hmm. always been this in a certain way, which, by the way, is actually potentially problematic in certain ways. And that homosexuality is not like DNA as much as it is. But as a strategy, it's quite effective. Um, and uh, they said... This is what this person always is. And you are helping them be more of who you are, right? And so in lots of ways, in very explicit ways and subtle ways, the gay rights movement in intentional and unintentional ways turned the expression of being a gay person into a Disney movie, into a Destiny narrative. And very successfully, right? And in one of the greatest slogans of all time, based upon affecting... One more time for all the liberals yeah, make, out there. Make America great again, the, yeah. 
Make America great again. It's the rediscovery of the destiny narrative. And the thing about the destiny narrative is there's all the, uh, there's many, many forms it can take, right? So there's discovery, there's rediscovery. And then what Disney has done really, really well recently is what I call double destiny. And so instead of the stories being about a princess or Luke Skywalker finding the thing that is inside of them, a person actually has two destinies. And the idea of it is they end up need to resolve this. So Moana has both the destinies of I'm the girl who's called to the sea, but she's also the princess. So Moana's destiny works like this. And it literally works in like four different songs. I'm going to sing some of the lyrics. I'm sorry. Um, so her always is, I always, I felt called to the water. I feel called to the water. Her struggle is she's on this island and she doesn't feel happy, even though everybody is telling her that she needs to be happy. Be the princess, lead the people. All you need is the coconut. And then she discovers that she is descended from voyagers across the sea. Like the thing that she has inside of her is what she and her people are meant to be. And so her, her, her always is she's always the princess and she's always felt called to the water. Her struggle is she doesn't know how to resolve those. Her discovery is that she is meant to lead her people. So be a person of these people on this island but then take them across the sea. And in one of the most banger Disney songs, narratively at least, she sings, I'm, I am the girl who loved my, who loves her island and the girl who loves the sea. I am Moana, right? That is just, it's powerful. It's everything. Uh, if you look at the movie Coco, um, it does sort of the same thing. If you look at the movie Inside Out, that is sort of a destiny narrative of people seeing that joy and sadness are not together. And Disney is really, really good at doing it. And, and in modern times, and modern times, if we're going to use that term, we like uh, resolving or oscillating between conflicting things. And so this works really, really well. And so these simple stories, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've rambled enough. I, lo I love no, this I realization. <laughs> but th but this is I mean this is super useful I think again any kind of marketing exercise right thinking about yeah. okay taking taking that same kind of narrative and putting your customer or even if you're trying to like recruit employees right in your recruiting messaging putting this into that and I don't think it gets applied enough in that particular area we put a job posting out and we like expect people to apply for it but like I think I think Disney if you go look at like a lot of Disney's stuff and how they recruit like the images of like the bus driver like helping the princess onto the <laughs> onto the bus and it's just like it it's taking i feel like some of those same principles and applying it into that space but people can take yeah. those principles and do that right yeah and so disney uses this in their marketing so in possibly one of the most effective disney marketing campaigns of all time the disney side campaign which was at a time so successful that and this is a word of somebody inside of disney who said it this way to me we cannot it would probably not be possible for us to price people out of this park at this moment. Like, <laughs> it's just insane how much people want to come to this place, right? So the Disney side campaign was based upon identity, which is what the Disney destiny is all about. It's all about identity. And instead of them saying, yo, Everest is an amazing roller coaster. Hey, isn't our rides awesome? Look at how cool our new shows are. They didn't market the product to the people in moderate... It marketed the people to the product and it used the destiny narrative in their famous, their two famous commercials from it. So one of them was the viral campaign, which you can walk up, which was done in a mall where people are walking along in a mall 
And behind them is this screen. And they had actors in Disney costumes who were amazing at mimicking people's behaviors and also some of them at dancing. And so as somebody walked, it literally looked like the person had a Disney shadow. And so the idea is that everybody has a Disney side and they did a multi-narrative storytelling where they'd have a kid walk by who's cool. And then Disney, there was a cool Mickey. They had a girl who had a princess side. They had a business dude who was on a cell phone, you know, business casual, being all businessy. But he has a goofy side. Oh, my God, we all have a Disney side. Disney is inside of us. Disney is who you are. So if Disney is who you are, you need to go to the parks to express that. And the commercials that were like the more traditional commercials literally were those beats. So it was, it would have this, it would have an adult. Um, They did one with a a mom, a dad, uh, a grandma, and a grandpa, I believe. And the person, Disney side, and so the idea is you've always had a Disney side. They're not saying that, but they're communicating this. And your struggle is it's coming out in the wrong time. So a mom jumps into the aquarium because she thinks she's Ariel. A grandfather goes on stage during a school production of Lion King. A dad pretends to be Darth Vader in a harm improvement store embarrassing his kids. And so what you need to do is you need to discover the Disney parks. And I, I, I'm going to butcher the line just a little bit from the commercial, but it is, we, you all have it, we all have a Disney side and the Disney parks is the best place to express that or let it mm, out, mm. right? And so it's like, this is who you are. It's so much of who you are. It is always coming out. This is the best place to come out and be you. Holy crap. Like it's, it's so, so effective. And I, I talked to some of the people that worked on that and um, they, uh, some of them were in active, they were actually activists. Um, for different causes. And when they were thinking about that campaign, they were thinking about things related to how they act. They are activists for ideas that people are sometimes resistant to, right? And so with Disney, the idea is a person, if you go up to like a dad and the dad is not like thinking of himself as a Disney person, he might be like, look, look, I get it. This theme park's got some cool stuff. I get it. Your social cause is important, but that's just not who I am. I'm not a Disney person. I'm not a person that shows up to the women's march, right? That's, I get it. Cool, cool. But that's not who I am. And so what this does is say that is who you are. And right, all of a sudden, when you show the person, oh, you have a Star Wars side and that's Disney. They go, yeah, I'm a Disney person. And then all of a sudden they go to the parks. Hey, princesses are pretty cool, right? And it, and that's how it works, right? Oh, I'm not a, 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 you know, I'm not really into the women's march and that type of stuff. Oh, but you have a, you have a daughter, right? Yeah. And you want these things for her. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah, I'll go there. Oh, wow. Intersectionality is important. We have, we have, have we talked enough about the intersection of race and gender and also break the binary, right? If that's how it happens. Um, and it sucks that it has to happen like that. You should just be able to go to someone and give them a fact. That's what you do in an ideal world. But we do not live in an ideal world. We live in this one. And in an unideal world, unideal strategies are necessary and- if you want to change things for the better. That's what, that's what works. You got to do it. You can't, you can't run from it. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed part one of two with Troy Campbell. Now what you can expect in next week's episode, we're going to be diving deep into how Disney creates incredible experiences and the science behind some of the principles that they use. Then we're going to be talking about something called metamodernism, which is a cultural theme that is happening right now. And we're going to talk about how you can take advantage of that concept in your marketing, storytelling, and the way that you create your products and services. 
then we're also going to be talking about the secret of cool. Troy has kind of narrowed it down to a true definition of what makes something cool. And then we're going to talk about that principle and how you can use it to make your business, your offerings, your value proposition to the people you serve, how you can make that cool. Now, if you want to get a hold of Troy, you want to reach him, he's actually not on social media, but you can find him at OYF.com. And that's for On Your Feet, uh, the company that Troy is with, OYF.com. Or you can find him at Troy-Campbell.com. Not TroyCampbell.com, Troy-Campbell.com. If you type his name into Google, that stuff will come up. Uh, but yeah, hope you guys enjoyed this incredible episode jam-packed with science with Troy Campbell. And hopefully you'll tune in next week when we drop part two. Until then, we'll see you later.